and the Practical Animal Welfare Science to Pause platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and today I'm delighted to welcome back for the second time, Jan van Hoof, who is a Dutch biologist and was a professor of comparative physiology at Utrecht University for over three decades in the Netherlands. This episode will be part of a podcast series with Jan van Hoof. This is the second one, who not only has an excellent mind in science, teaching and research, but is also a storyteller extraordinaire. We recorded this podcast in a different way than you are used to, as Jan has trouble hearing, but no trouble sharing many different stories. So get some tea and have a seat. Maybe you're out on a walk or anything else you like to do when listening to a podcast and let yourself be transported back into time with the stories of Jan van Hoof. Welcome, Jan. In a previous presentation, I told you about my early years, my youth in the Arnhem Zoo. Growing up in the zoo, the Burgess Zoo at Arnhem, of which my parents were the directors. And I was fascinated in animal behavior. So it was almost self-evident that I would go and study biology. And I went to Utrecht University. And I was interested in botany and in all kinds of aspects of zoology, but I really got the kick when I started working in the Institute of Professor Sven Dijkraaf. He was a sensory physiologist and he became famous um, because of his investigations into echolocation of bats. Dijkraaf discovered the publications of a late 18th century zoologist, an Italian called Spallanzani, who did remarkable observations at the time, late 18th century, mind you, animal experimentation. He showed that in a dark room, bats would, could fly around and could avoid obstacles, even if he had blinded them. That is something nowadays, you're probably your ethical committee at the university would not really easily approve of that. But he blinded his bats that he kept by, with a, with a, with a, with a hot, iron pin, he burnt out the eyes. He found that after the animals had recovered from, uh, from the trauma, that in a dark room and in a room, they could still fly around and still avoid obstacles, even though they didn't have any, any eyes. How was that to be explained? He had no idea. Well, he gradually got an idea because his experimentation went on. And one of the things uh, 
not only he, but another one did that as well. They put plugs in the ears of the bats. And after they had plugged the ears of the bats, the animals bumped into everything. The bats couldn't fly anymore. They refused to fly. They didn't want to because they couldn't they avoid obstacles anymore. So that was remarkable. That meant that these bats can see with their ears. How can you explain that? Spallanzani had no idea. He thought of echoes, but then the bats, echoes of what? Dijkraaf at the time, and this was during the Second World War, and universities had to, be, had to close in the Netherlands uh, somewhere around uh, 41, I think it was. Um, because at the time, scientists and students in occupied Holland, the Netherlands, had to sign a declaration in which they agreed to agree with national socialist principles of the occupier of the, the German Nazi party. And when most Dutch scientists and most university students refused, they had to go underground, they had to disappear. And Dijkraaf, the university was closed and Dijkraaf was sitting there in his institute, what to do? And he started experimenting. He took up the old experiments of Spallanzani in a dark cellar under the institute, he kept bats and he trained them to fly towards objects in the cellar um, behind which, uh, after which they were rewarded with a mealworm. Now, what did he do? He cut out pieces, small pieces of cardboard in different forms, in the form of a cross, in the form of a triangle, in the form of a little rounded form. And then he trained, uh, hang these, um, uh, these obstacles on, on a wire somewhere in the cellar, and then released the bat and trained them to go to a particular object, to go to the cross in, and not to the triangle and not to the circle. And on other occasions, he trained them to the other way around. And he found that these bats could distinguish forms, a little cardboard cross from a little cardboard triangle with exactly the same surface. So it was the form that they recognized and discrimination therefore of form by, and he, he realized what it was because he noticed also Dijkhoff had very good hearing that when these bats flew, they produce little quicks, barely audible. Um, they have a very good hearing. But later on, he deduced that what he heard, he heard in these clicks are the low frequency compounds of a wide range of, of, of spectral sound with ultrasound with high frequencies that we can't hear. 
but these high frequency sound components in the clicks, they produce a very sharp echo of objects on which they rebound. And these echoes have uh, information about where it comes from, from. And so he can also, a part of the echo comes from a little bit to the left and all parts a little bit to the right. So there's an object there of that dimension, of that form. They can hear forms with their ears, discriminate that. So that was, that was great. Um, Dave Dijkraaf published his public, uh, his data during the war in 1943. He did that in German. And it was only discovered by the Anglophone world after the war. At exactly the same time, there was an American, and that was Donald Griffin. And he did also, he discovered echolocation in bats and studied that, but particularly also in dolphins. Um, and mind you, the difference there in the United States, in another part of the world, and in occupied Germany, uh, in Holland, part of the Netherlands, two people were interested in the same question. The thing is that Donald Griffin in the US, when he realized that echolocation played a role, he triggered the interest of the Navy and of the American Army because they were highly interested in echolocation. Um, it was developed by the Navy to detect a sub, um, yeah, well, animal objects below the surface of the ocean. Submarines could be detected by echolocated symbols. So Donald Griffin got the technical means to study that um, advanced uh, sound producing ultrasound producing things and, and well, he got the technical equipment and there were these two. And after the war, they discovered one another's discoveries. They discovered one another's discoveries, yes. And you realize, and I realized at the time also, that whereas Donald Griffin had access to all kinds of modern and up-to-date technical things, Dijkhoff worked with a figure saw, cut out pieces of cardboard, pieces of triplex, etc., and hung them on a wire in a dark cellar. And they came at about the same conclusion. So this was fascinating. Dijkhoff did other things. He um, got a reputation and with students of his, of his study of electroperception in sharks and in fish. Now, um, if you have a shark in an aquarium, we had a large aquarium in the, uh, in, in the Institute, and we kept, and, and they kept sharks there. And if you bury um, a living animal in the sand on the bottom of the aquarium, and it is buried under the sand and a shark swims around in the aquarium and comes in the neighborhood of that buried soul. He goes to that piece of, to the, to the bottom there 
digs up the sand and finds the soul. How could the shark do that? Now, to cut a long story short, um, Dijkhaven and his collaborators investigated uh, a function that they discovered, electroperception. These sharks have a little canals on their head and there's a sensory pits and in these are electroperceptive org organs. Now, what I would like to come to is the next. There are two different animals, bats that see, so to speak, with their ears. Sharks that know precisely the electric fields in the sea where they swim around. They have a picture of the whole of the electric fields and can detect objects and things. So they, so to speak, they visualize their world electrically. Bats visualize their world acoustically. It means they are completely different perceptive worlds. We have no idea, mammals as we are, and probably birds also, no idea how these animals must experience their world. And without knowing at the time, and I think even Dijkhaf not realizing it to the full extent, was that we were dealing with a phenomenon that would be a philosophical point of discussion much later on in the last decade. An American philosopher, Thomas Nagel, wrote a book. It was called, What is it like to be a bat? How does a bat experience the world? And it led to a fundamental philosophical debate that is still raging today. Bats experience a world, they must be. We assume that they are conscious animals, but how do they experience that world? Now, Nagel pointed out that we haven't got any access to that. It's the first person perspective that we call consciousness. We experience the world as humans, I have a sensation of the world around me. I experience it. I know that my fellow human creatures do the same. They can tell me about that. But their first person experience is not mine. I cannot share that. I can only share what they inform me about it. So there is a subjective conscious world that is different from the third-person perspective, what I can know as a third person about what the first person tells others about his experience. But it is not my experience. It is his or her experience. So in that sense, we have no access to the experiential world of animals, but it is there. It is there. And Thomas Nagel went on and said, this subjective consciousness, this, we can try to explain that in terms of brain functions, uh, let's say in terms of physical terms, 
we can look at uh, action potentials in nerves, but it doesn't tell us what it is to experience things. And he thought that there is a fundamental difference between consciousness and what we know about the processes that must be at the basis of that. And that leads to discussions that have a long philosophical tradition already. That is the distinction between mind and matter. Are there, to put it in Cartesian terms, René Descartes, who in the 17th century, a philosopher who claimed that in man and only in man that you can distinguish the mind and the body. Animals, he thought at the time, were machines. They function the way, of course, he didn't know much about physiology, but he conceived of them as machines. You can study their organisms, you can study their eyes, and you can imagine that in the time in the 17th century, um, one knew about lenses and things like that, and that the eye is a lens that goes through the brain and that something happens in the brain. But then there is a separate thing and that is the mind. And the mind is in the body. We call that dualism. Now, many philosophers have refused to accept that there is a fundamental dualism. They would, um, say, eventually, uh, ultimately, our psychological phenomena must be explainable, processes must be explainable in terms of neural processes. The mind is a function, so to speak, of, of the brain, if you want to put it simply. So if you know brain processes in the end, we can understand uh, the mind. Um, that is a fundamental question in philosophy, and there are several answers to that. But um, you realize how uh, this work on the sensory mechanisms of animals, of which we have can't form a subjective picture of how it is like that that deals with these things. And it fascinated me, really. So I got into this philosophical debate in a way. This sparked my interest in animal behavior. Now, at the same time that I was with Dijkhoff in the Institute, I got, um, I got to read a book by Conrad Lorenz. And Conrad Lorenz was a German biologist. He, he trained as a, as, a, as a medical student but he became tremendously interested in animal behavior. And together with Nico Tinbergen, who at the same time, and I'm talking about the 30s, 1930 and onward, uh, there was, in, in Holland, there was a man called Nico Tinbergen, who later would be a Nobel Prize winner, together with Konrad Lorenz. They were regarded the founders of a new branch of biology, which is called Ethology, the study of animal behavior. And Claude Lawrence, a good writer, popularizer of his part of science, he wrote a book, and I forgot what it is. 
ich sprach mit den Fischen, Viehvögeln und Fischen. I, I talked with fish, birds and animals. And there's a popular book in which he introduced the way he studied animal behavior. And he got to know Nico Timbergen. And Nico Timbergen studied the behavior of sticklebacks and the behavior of gulls. Now you would say, what's interesting about the behavior of sticklebacks? Well, he formulated a very important number of very important principles of, of behavior. But the essential thing is that both Lawrence and Nico Timbergen studied behavior as an organ of an organism. They said behavior is a function that just as, let's say, um, the way we, 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 we process our foods and our diet, animal functions are the functions of organs in an organism and behavior is a function of the brain, no doubt about it. So we can look at the phenomena of these functions, that is behavior and behavior, you can measure, you can see it. Do I need to suppose that there is a subject behind it to understand it? Well, Nico Tinbergen went as far as saying, no, we can't say anything about the subjective part of that. In this respect, he precedes Thomas Nagel in a way, but on a very difficult way, because Thomas Nagel says, there is a subjective world. We only can't see it. It's highly interesting. Nico Timbergen was a very objective scientist and said, the, the subjective world of animals is inaccessible to me. I don't know anything about it. The only thing I can talk about is what I see. Movements of muscles, production of sounds, etc. These are measurable behaviors. And what a behavior student of behavior should do, therefore, is not to fantasize about the imagination of animals, the, um, the subjective processes. No, try to find out what information the animal can process, perceive, okay? That sounded familiar to me as a student of, of, of Professor Dijkraaf. And then to see what processes, behavioral processes are there. Ah, an animal can bark, it can jump, it can catch fish, it can locate uh, its prey, it can orient itself in space. Okay, all these functions I can measure. And I can also see, okay, what stimuli does it react upon? What sensory information does it need? And then in between there is a brain that proceeds in translating the information that is relevant for the animal into a behavioral process. It's these processes that we have to study. We have to find out the rules of these processes and that they are executed by brains has to be investigated by neurophysiologists, neurobehaviorists. They called it the objective science of behavior. And it was a reaction to 19th century 
anthropomorphic uh, interpretations of animal behavior where people try to understand, do they love one another? Do they experience love? Uh, do parent animals love their, their chickens, etc.? To put it bluntly, Nico would say, they may or may not, I don't know, I'm not interested. What I want to know is how the parent animal recognizes a chick, how does it know, and how does it recognize it egg? How does it know that it has to sit on these little oval white things that, it ha that he has, that she has produced herself there in the dunes? Okay, he looked at these kind. Well, that was an important development because it brought ethology into the realm of objective natural science. They were great. Now, when I was at Rijkaard's Institute, I read Lawrence, I read a famous book, the first book, real book on ethology by Nico Timbergen, which was called The Study of Instinct. And I wanted to do this. And I read another book that was even more important. I read Darwin's The Expression of the Emotions in Men and the animals. And I told you in a previous podcast how as a young boy, I guided the last fittest out of the Arnhem Zoo at closing time. And I showed them the mandrills and the drills, and they have a remarkable facial expression, which we superficially interpret as a threat, but it isn't a threat, it's a friendly greeting. And that fascinated me. And I saw death of um, uh, Darwin's book, The Expression of the Emotions, and he described the facial expressions of monkeys and apes. And he had done that while visiting the primate house in the London Zoo, in the 19th century London Zoo. And I thought, this is interesting. This is fantastic. Um, looking at animals' expressions, and these ethologists, they are looking, Lawrence looking at these geese and, and some others. Are, um, and in Britain, people were looking at, at singing birds and things like that. And Nico Timberg was looking at his sticklebacks and, 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 and analyzing the behavior patterns and showing the expression movements and showing how animals even communicate in that they give signals that are perceived by another animal in which they show an intention movement of a behavior that they might wish to perform. But in doing so, they inform the conspecific of their intentions and the conspecific can react adequately on the signals that the sender gives. That is accepted communication analysis in ethology. And I know, I, I remember the facial expressions of my monkeys and I thought, okay, primates do the same. They have an expression of emotions. Darwin has described it. I want to know more about that. And I asked Dijkerhoff whether I could study that. And he said, well, <laughs> I, I don't know anything about these things. But if you want to study ethology, why don't you go um, to uh, real where it is being done now? Nico Tinberg had moved from, from Leiden University where he studies his stickerbacks to, uh, to Oxford where he started studying uh, especially uh, 
goals, uh, the behavior of goals. So perhaps he would like to accommodate you and help you if you want to study primate facial expressions. I came to, the, uh, to Nico Timberg and I said, that is what I want. I read Darwin's, the expression of facial, the, the expression of the emotions. And I noticed that Nico reacted. Yes, Darwin wrote the expression of the emotions. And you notice this is in rather subjective tone. Animals have emotions. It's about their feelings. So uh, Nico said, I wouldn't like to talk about animal emotions because I don't know whether they have emotions. I see behavior that resembles the behavior that we show if we experience emotions ourselves, but that is our first person perspective. I don't know about what goes on in the animals in terms of an experienced emotion, but you can study expressions, sure. And that is what Darwin also, but then you go about it as ethologists do, objectively. Now, the great thing about going to Nico was that he said, well, I can't really coach you in this because as long as animals have feathers and as long as they have uh, uh, fins and everything, I feel quite at home. But once they have hairs, I do not feel at home anymore. Mammals uh, have such fluid behaviors. It's so malleable. Um, whereas birds and fish are characterized by highly stereotypical forms of behavior, postures and sounds, etc. You can easily describe them and quantify them in terms of um, this is the curved back uh, vertical posture. This is the horizontal back, or, or whatever it is. But he said, I've got a student. His name is Desmond Morris. And he has just finished a PhD with me. And he is now curator of the mammals. He did his PhD thesis, by the way, on the 10 spine stickleback. Nico was an expert on the three spine stickleback. <laughs> Some people start laughing now and say, why are they interested in those animals? Well, they reveal principles of behavior. Is it the stickleback itself in which Tim Bergen was interested? No, in what it showed it us about how behavior is organized. Are geneticists intrinsically interested in the fruit fly? It was Mendel interested in the P? No, Mendel was interested in genetics. And some other people were interested in Drosophilas because they were interested in genetics. So a certain species is the object to discover fundamental scientific principles and to reveal scientific knowledge. So in this respect, the stickleback is its importance in science is because it led to discovery of all kinds of, uh, of, of principles of behavior. So anyway, Tim Berger said, um, uh, go to Desmond Morris, he's curator of mammals, although he studied 10 spine sticklebacks, but he will be certainly interested. I came to Desmond Morris, and I remember I met him at his institute in the, in, uh, in light, uh, second half of 1960. He was there and he was, had the supervision of, uh, of the monkey house. 
and I told him of what I would like to do. And he said, that is wonderful. And in fact, I realized at that moment I had landed the right spot for this. First of all, by getting to Desmond Boyce, who's greatly interested in expanding ethology also to mammalian behavior. And, uh, and also because the London Zoo was ideal for this. Ideal? Yes, because it was absolutely 19th century old-fashioned. It was an old-fashioned zoo. Nowadays, the London Zoo still exists, but um, it's more, in certain ways, a historical monument than a zoological garden as we really nowadays want to see it. Because the 19th century zoo came forth from the interest of people in different species. Zoology described all kinds of different species. They were discover discovered in the colonies of the colonizing nations and they were brought home. And you had all kinds of different monkeys and different birds. And the zoo made them, collect them and put them in a living stamp album, so to speak. All the different species next to one another. And the London Monkey House was just that, a page in a post, in, in an album, so to speak. So I could go there and stand in front of the cages and look at the expressive behavior of the Macaca Sinica. Next cage was the Macaca Mulata, the rhesus monkey. Next to it, the Macaca Fascicularis, the crab-eating monkey, etc. And when these meet, the crab-eating monkeys quickly smacked their lips and looked at one another, quickly sm smacking their lips. And when I got to the, to the Barbary macaques, Macaca Silvana, they did smack their lips, but bare their teeth at the same time and shattered with their teeth. So they had species-specific different expression movements. Oh gosh, how interesting. Each one does it in its own way. They are species-specific. And I started describing this and noticing the making, so to speak, a kind of taxonomy of their facial expressions. And then you realize that also our human facial expressions are variations on a theme that we discover in the primate. They communicate with their faces. And we have also species-specific expressions. For instance, oh yes, I got interested in an expression, a human expression, which is remarkably odd if you come to think about it, and that is human laughter. All humans all over the world do this. And what is laughter? It's the most crazy behavior that you can think of, because we start barking with heels short, barking expirations, Ha, 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 ha. And then I, I, I get, I, I choke with laughter. I, I get in a deep phase of expiration. So I have to introduce an inspiration, an inspiration howl. 
and another burst of barks. <laughs> what a funny behavior. And at the same time, I shed tears. Tears wiggle over my cheeks. And I lose my equilibrium. If I'm standing next to somebody else, I put my hands, my arm around his shoulders, not to fall down. And I double up from laughter. Why, Crowley, what a strange behavior. And then you wonder, why do people do this? Well, they do this if they think something is absolutely funny. They use it to express that this is, this is crazy. This is. This is a joke. Why should we do that? And you realize that also in human behavior, there are patterns, fixed patterns, that an ethologist could study. Just as he studied the dance of a certain bird, the etc., the courtship dances, etc., and of, of certain fishes. And that brings me to something different. It also brought to my attention the traditional dichotomic way we think of animals and man. And I may now exaggerate a little bit, but uh, allow, permit me to do that, to make my point clear. Um, animals in the traditional way of simple thinking, let me put it this way, um, show instinctive behavior patterns. We can study these patterns. They are like organs. You can describe them precisely and tell how they occur, when they occur, and what makes them occur. Um, man is quite different. Man is not an instinctive being in that sense, because these animals do that because of innate programs that they are equipped with. Man is a rational being. He is the thinking animal with a thinking mind. He knows what he is doing. He is aware of what he is doing. He is different. To put it in the terms of Descartes again, the great French philosopher, animals are machines with organs that react. Man, is a machine but steered, governed by a thinking, feeling, sensing mind. That is animal-man dichotomy, that is mind-machine dualism. And I got involved in that. And I realized, yes, also the human being, laughter is a fun fantastic example of how in our human behavior and we have to open our eyes to see it because we are we don't think of it in that way but also our human behavior is patterned is shaped in terms of more or less fixed action patterns as ethologists would call it only they are not that strictly, strongly fixed as in fish and in birds. We are mammals, it's plastic, more. But 
Laughter is a species-specific human behavior. In other words, there must be a genetic basis for that behavior that takes care of the fact that in all human cultures, it is expressed in the same way. Now, some people hearing this will say, okay, uh, you say that, but it simply isn't true because Japanese don't laugh in a very different way and about oh, uh, um, they have a different kind of humor. Oh yes, for sure. But if you start looking at it in detail, the essentials are the same. There's cultural variation on the basis of that, but there's cultural variations of a certain pattern. And that was what I realized standing in front of the monkey cages in the uh, London Zoo, because I was fascinated by a behavior that they showed during social play. The play phase, if young monkeys, but also all of it is specifically young monkeys. They delight in playing with one another. And what is play? Play is chasing after one another, um, grasping, jumping on one another, uh, uh, pulling the hairs, etc. Wrestling. I called it gnaw wrestling because they gnaw on one another's limbs and and they seem to enjoy it. Okay, all ethologists don't talk about enjoy because you don't know the emotions of animals. I don't know them, but I do not deny their existence. And I assume that probably also in these monkeys, there is a subjective sight and that is an experience of their play. I could paraphrase the, uh, the title of uh, Thomas Reiser's book, What is it like to be a bat? I could paraphrase it as, what is it like to be a playing monkey? What is it like? Do they experience joy in play? Do they have fun? Do they have fun? Well, I can't look into their mind. I can't share this first person's perspective, but I don't deny that they have it. And in that respect, I was different from the objectivistic behavior researchers of the time. Ethology started out as the study of fish and birds. Um, and as I said, behaviors look at behavior. At the time that ethology, uh, developed, grew up in continental Europe. In the US, there was already a long tradition of the study of animal behavior, but it was called comparative psychology. And comparative psychologists were not zoologists. They were psychologists who were interested in human psychology, but also thought that the mechanisms of behavior in our brains, etc., must be homologous, comparable to mechanisms that operate in other mammals. And that the behavior that animals show must follow the same principles and that also human behavior rests on similar principles. We have our thinking 
animals we don't know about are thinking, but what we know is that they can be conditioned, that they can learn, that they can be rewarded for behavior under certain circumstances, and that they then learn to discriminate the, the circumstances under which the behavior has favorable effects. So they do the behavior now, they perform it in order to achieve these effects, what they call reinforcements, or in day-to-day -day terms, they do it to get a reward, or they do it to avoid a certain punishment. Uh, a reward and punishment structure behavioral processes, and these are learning processes. And that was where the American psychologists were interested in. But they said, we don't know about what's going on in these animals. We look at their behavior. We see conditioning. And therefore, they were called behaviorists. And in fact, so they restricted their interest to what they saw in terms of the input of an animal, in terms of stimulus, inputs, influences, and the behavior, the outputs of behavior that are the processes and how they are steered and adjusted to external circumstances. That is behavior. And we want to find out what laws, what regularities are the basis of that. And these are obviously regulated by processes in the brain. And that's brain science. So this was, if I would call it, a rather materialistic, physicalistic, approach to behavior and to the animal mind. We can't say anything about the subjective world. The next step was that some scientists said it doesn't even exist. They adhered to Cartesian dualism. It says animals are machines. Man is a machine with a mind, but we can only study the machines and animals are no more than that. And here, Finally, all things for me came together in the sense that I realized emotional expression in animals is interesting because it has to do with that debate, the mind-body debate. Darwin, in his time, had no problem with that. He called his famous book when he, where he uh, made basic observations about animal expressions without ever doubting that at the basis of that, there would be emotions in the animals and that they would express these subjective emotions by their behavior. Anyway, you could say that for me, I gradually sensed that with my study of primate expressions and also comparing these with human expressions, I came from a different perspective again in this mind-body debate, in this experience, subjective experience versus objective process debate. Um, so there I was at the London Zoo looking at primate behavior with the eye of an ethologist, looking at behavior patterns, trying to do comparison between species and seeing that these behaviors can be treated as taxonomic 
characteristics. A macaca fasciculares has a different expression from a macaca cervano. It's a taxonomic characteristic. They are organs of the organism, so to speak, but they reflect a psychological process, a subjective something. And I had landed at the right place to do that in an old-fashioned zoo. Later on, I, I was to return at the Arnhem Zoo and realized that the way in which zoos keep their animals is out of date, is completely old-fashioned and is in certain sense no longer acceptable. Animals are no stamps which you put together in an album. The monkey house cages of three by three by four meters wide and rows of them with a species in each of them. Fantastic for studying behavioral taxonomy, but in a certain sense inadequate as animal um, environments. Later on in the law in the when I came back to Arnhem to Burgess Zoo, I had the privilege to be involved together with my brother, who later on uh, succeeded my mother as the director of the Arnhem Zoo, to transform this zoo in a completely different place with its chimpanzee colony, with its uh, tropical forage, with its savanna, with its African uh, herds of African mammals, which it, with its ocean, which is very large basin with marine, marine ecosystems in it, with its um, swamp forest. But these are things I would like to talk about in, a, in another podcast. For the time being, I want to conclude that the London Zoo experience was very, very inspiring and brought me to a subject which I would like to talk in another podcast again, and that is the evolution of our human laughter, how it evolved. Thank you very much for your interest. Goodbye. Till next time. Thank you so much again for a wonderful podcast, another end of a podcast here. And of course, as you know, well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself to be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And PAUSE is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice where you can get the education and tools you need so you and your animals can flourish. So if you feel inspired, follow the link in the podcast description to become a PAUSE member today.